0: Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle. This is The Schwepp, The Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, online at Schwepp.net. And today we are speaking with Dr. Brian Alt, a man who knows a thing or two about the nitty-gritty of Yamblichian theurgic practice. Brian, thanks so much for coming on The Schwepp. Thanks for having me. Your thesis, hot off the presses, 2020, the University of Indiana, called Correspondences and Invocations, Sacred Materials, Divine Names, and Subtle Physiology in Yamblikus. and it's. Uh, exploration of the details of and practice from a number of different angles, from a number of different kind of methodological perspectives. And we want to talk about all that stuff. So let us follow your noetic triad and start with the sacred materials side of things.
1: Okay. What yeah. can you tell us about this? Uh, so this this part of the project was initially intended as a kind of introduction to it. Um, I think that in some sense, materials are the most straightforward kinds of sumbala or Synthamata, right? Um, these divine traces of um, the gods that are in the material world that, that the theurgist then uses to um, enact theurgic ritual. Um, I will say too, that I don't think that there was necessarily just like one central theurgic ritual, but that the kinds of things um, Iamblichus is talking about um, in a kind of Greco-Egyptian context himself can be found in, say, the Greco-Egyptian ritual papyri or the PGM. So very early on in the project, I was looking at, um, you know, Yamblichus talking about the sacred theurgic art, in many cases, links together stones, plants, animals, aromatic substances, and other such things that are sacred, perfect, and godlike, and so on, and then uses these to pr- provide a kind of, or to construct a kind of receptacle for divine influence. And I think that the receptacle then can be anything from a statue or a dwelling for the gods that he talks about, or, but also just perhaps the, the human soul. Mm-hmm. So initially I was led, uh, or kind of looked at the planetary incenses um, from PGM 13, or the so-called Eighth Book of Moses, also called the Monad, and um, And there we have an explicit set of seven incenses related to the seven planets. Um, As I got into this more, I realized how widespread the planetary sphere model was, you know, going all the way back to um, Plato's Timaeus and went from there. So to me, the material aspect of theurgy starts in a kind of like purification, um, which gets to the idea that Yamblichus talks about of creating or enhancing the fitness of the soul, the epitadeotes, And it's the fitness of the soul that makes us receptive to divine influence. So, you know, I was thinking along the lines of Plutarch's account of how incense is used for purification at the end of the, um, on on Isis and Osiris, alongside like Yamblichus's account of um, planetary sympathy in, um, the Pythagorean life and the way that he discusses, um, you know, the music of the spheres and um, kind of a um, a music therapy, if you will, a therapy of not just the body, but the passions of the irrational soul. And um, thinking about how close these two Platonists were writing about uh, Pythagoreans and Egyptians using these uh, techniques to purify the soul and just kind of went from there. So, that, of course, led me to Proclus and some of these other sources that are explicit about a kind of planetary psychology, if you will, as you've mentioned in previous episodes, like both uh, Proclus and Macrobius kind of have this shared system that neither of them uh, seems to have claimed as their own, but they're probably deriving from some unknown source as far as we know um, to me it it seemed like you know using the individual planetary themata to purify the individual faculties of the irrational soul, um, which, you know, are responsible for emotions and whatnot, but also are very much part of how we interact with the world. Like, we can't really live inside of a body without these faculties. So I guess another connected thing would be Plato's tripartite soul. As in the, the Republic. Right, the Republic and even the chariot metaphor in the Phaedrus, I think, kind of relevant here, too. The two horses, they're identified as uh, like Thumos and Epithumia, so the spirited faculty and the desiring faculty. So in the planetary model in Proclus and Macrobius, these become the faculties of Mars and Venus respectively, and then we get you know five more also. So it, it really seems like an elaboration of the, the tripartite platonic model of the soul that's then mm-hmm. kind of um, developed into this planetary model that probably... Um, has sources in Hellenized Egypt, you know, so definitely some of the Hermetica would also be relevant. Right.
0: Here. So Poimandres, which we've covered quite a bit, definitely has this, although it, it, early on in the Poimandres, they seem to be planetary say qualities, but then later on they become vices. And certainly in the Ogdoad reveals the Ennead, you have planetary vices that are being driven out by the, the holy powers that come down. And, we have something kind of it would certainly cognate, if not exactly the same model in Porphyry, whom Iamblichus knows intimately, whether, whatever their exact relationship was, he definitely knows him and knows his work. And I feel myself kind of moving toward already the subtle physiology side of things, just from the subject matter. But before we do that, let's, let's stick with the sacred materials. Okay. Because it, it's really, really interesting. How do you relate this astral stuff to the material Synthemata, like in a ritual context. So we've got a whole, what I guess is a traditional set of correspondences and Synthemata that Iamblichus has inherited from, maybe from his teachers, maybe from oral lore where he lives, and maybe from texts, not unlike some of the stuff we find in the PGM or the Hermetic Cherenides, where you have these these lists of occult properties of... Stones, plants, incense, etc. Right, right. He's he's drawing yeah. on some kind of lore like that, but philosophizing it. So he's he's telling you not that it works, but why it works. How does that relate to this astral stuff? Well,
1: it it all relates in a system that I'm calling cosmic sympathy, and um, you know, this is generally understood to be a, a stoic idea, probably the Stoics were the ones who started using sympathea, the Greek term, in that way to apply to things that happen in the cosmos that are separated by space, but seem to be related in terms of their causality or whatnot. And so we see this, you know, Plotinus uses this metaphor a lot, talking about the body, um, the way that different parts of the body work, or he'll use the metaphor of a string vibrating in one uh, part of the universe that causes all the other strings in the other parts to vibrate. So I don't see cosmic sympathy necessarily as being a singularly stoic phenomenon, but rather that it is very much present already in its important parts, like in Plato's Timaeus again. And there we have, you know, this notion that not only are the planets there called like the organs of time. literally, you know, our word for organs. And, you know, so very much within this someone platonic, might want
0: to translate that as instruments. Of instruments
1: sure. Yeah, absolutely. But since they're talking about the uh, cosmos as a living organism, um, I don't think the organs is necessarily wrong, you know, so just thinking of these things as being the, the parts of the cosmic system. Um, some hermetic texts even refer to these planets as stoichea you know, the elements of the cosmos even. So, you know, under, understanding those as being the primary moving parts of the cosmos, the organs of time, which later become the organs of fate in certain authors like Synesius. Very much that model becomes, you know, I, I'm a former student of John Turner at the University of Nebraska, and he famously said, or famous to me anyway, that um, this was the most important religious text in antiquity, the Timaeus, just by how important it became for later Gnostic and Hermetic texts, and really the whole second century um, effluence of many, many new religious movements, right? Well, I
0: think also just the way that it, it was the master key for when anyone approached an Abrahamic creation story, whether it be the, the Jewish one or the Quranic version, from a philosophical perspective, they turned to the Timaeus as the interpretive key from Philo onward, right? So it's Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the Timaeus is totally central. I agree with John Turner. May he rest in the Pleroma. So I'm with you sympathy is there even if the stoics put the name made the name famous but also in plotinus we've seen very explicitly in the context of magea of all things like how yeah. it works this idea of sympathy employed but it's sublunary definitely it's cos- or it's 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 N cosmic for sure it this is this only applies within the cosmos
1: right yeah <laughs> And that's true for Iamblichus as well. He sometimes distances himself from Sympathia, but talks about its hypercosmic cause, philia or love, you know, kind of this cohesive force that holds the universe together, which um, in, I think you're talking about uh, Plotinus's, and he had 4 4.4, like chapter 40, where he's um, talking about this, how magic works, right? And yeah. Um, yeah, he's also talking philia and Nekos, you know, play a, mm. a big role there.
0: Which listeners will remember from our episode on, Empedocles, which you can go back and check out if you haven't checked it out.
1: So yeah, I mean, and I don't think that, that Plotinus necessarily has a positive role for Nacos. He's just like the Nekos that comes along with philia. So it's like where it could be maybe uh, characterized as the lack of philia in any given local situation or something yeah. like that, um, which you know helps to uh, define how sympathy and its corresponding force antipathy work. You know, It's just kind of like the negative side of a lack of uh, sympathy, so the way that the Stoic version of sympathy normally is presented as that is that it 's like a horizontal functioning thing, so you know doing one material thing in the sublunar world affects something else in the sublunar world. I would say for the Platonists at least, sympathy always has a kind of like verticality to it um, usually there 's some kind of astronomical or other perhaps like temporal or spatial reference, basically categories of correspondence, whether those are the planetary spheres or the Zodiac or the, you know, the 36 decans in an Egyptian or Hermetic system and so on and so on. So, yeah, I was really surprised to find so much of this stuff in Plotinus. And I think the, the way that, that he discusses cosmic sympathy and its relationship to magic is very similar to the way um, Iamblichus deploys these these ideas uh, with regard to theurgy.
0: Word. I agree with you. But Plotinus, of course, has an impassable soul, which never really descends into the cosmos and cannot be affected by magic. It seems to me he puts a ceiling on the verticality that you're talking about, right? Yes, there are correspondences between the noetic realm and the cosmos, and even between the one and the noetic realm and the cosmos. There is that vertical connection, of course, in Plotinus, but it's not through sympathy. Sympathy is uses that term specifically to refer to stuff in the embodied realm kind of having these right. uh, quantum entanglement relationships with each other or planetary yeah, spooky action at a distance. As yeah. I think Einstein would say.
1: Yeah. Um, the point that Iamblichus, I think where he might differ from Plotinus is just the idea that the gods are the source of this kind of action at a distance. So even if the, the ritual practitioner is doing something, you know, with a synthema of Venus to accomplish some Venusian task, uh, you know the next city over or something like that it's still going to be the god or goddess in this case doing the work i don't know that that's a great example of of theurgy using <laughs> it, it probably won't be more something like using a venusian implement to to purify perhaps the um the epithumia
0: right like the desiring faculty right. of the soul and now, from the way you're describing Yamblicos, or the way you're extrapolating, so, okay, you're a theurgist, you have some Synthemata, you're going to do something, let's call it talismanic, right? You, using sure. a later term, but this is the, the idea. What are you trying to do? You're not trying to make people fall in love with you. You're not doing that kind of what we might call common gutter magic type stuff <laughs> because you're a philosopher, right? But you might well be trying to to purify your soul, to temper your attachments, stuff like this, which brings us like directly into planetary talisman making that we find throughout the Middle Ages and through like Western esotericism into the Renaissance and everywhere. So it's like if that is what Jan is talking about, he's at the beginning of something big. Yeah, I think so. And I don't know that he would be I don't know like what his opinion on
1: like talismans would be per se. But, you know, the idea of using planetary materials to purify the soul seems like that's pretty solid ground, I would I would say, maybe compared to um, talismans. But certainly he talks about using statues and, you know, domiciles for the gods and whatnot. Um, and in both Iamblichus and Proclus, they use statues as not just a, a literal statue, but they'll, you know, often use it as a kind of metaphor for the soul, perhaps. I mean, even Plotinus, again, has the, the famous passage on remember to work on your statue and make yourself more beautiful. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think in the PGM, you see a kind of miniaturization of, you know, temple ritual. And it's the kinds of things that like, there's a piece that Jaco Dilemon and um, Ian Moyer have talked about. I think it's in PGM 12 or 14. It's one of the bilingual Greek and Demotic papyri. And um, it's basically a miniaturization of the opening of the mouth ritual um, from the ancient Egyptian practice uh, that they use not only on statues but on you know the deceased like they would do this uh, to yeah. a mummy so in the PGM it becomes this elaborate right to just enchant a ring and I don't remember the exact purpose of the ring there but yeah we can imagine I think s- things like that that might enhance the fitness of the soul in a theurgic
0: context um mm. When when we talked about statue animation in the context of the Chaldean oracles, we, we did address this Egyptian practice because it's funny that for, for the Egyptians, this was like mainstream temple cult carried out every day. And this is, you know, partly what lies behind the apocalypse in the Hermetic Asclepius, where he talks about like the gods leaving the world because Egypt is this great temple. It's like because the reason it's this great temple is because these priests are working tirelessly to draw the gods down and keep them here and and put them everywhere and kind of create this whole god architecture in Egypt. And when the temple cult fails, that fails and humanity is screwed. So the fact that this ritual is, we find it in a kind of privatized form in the PGM is fascinating. So you, you don't need the temple anymore. And in fact, you don't you don't have a temple anymore. So it's it's a good thing you don't need a temple anymore. But right. you could just get on with it in a kind of small scale, private, entrepreneurial way.
1: Yeah. And so this whole idea of like astrological remediation seems useful, too. And I, you know, Yamblichus doesn't really talk about this a whole lot other than, to, you know, responding to Porphyry, um, his questions about the planets that are. Uh, supposedly responsible for negative influences on Earth, namely Saturn and uh, Mars. And Yamblichus says, well, no, that these aren't really bad. They're, that's just um, us as parts of the cosmos as a whole experience things um, in a bad way. Um, and so I think, you know, thinking of the soul's descent through the planetary spheres and, you know, picking up influences at each uh, station and then the moment of birth or just prior to birth. So, you know, the planet's being arranged in a certain configuration in which some of them are in good places and others are maybe not so good places. The faculties of the soul that are picked up there that are necessary for, you know, living in a body, things like perception and the animating forces and um, even the spirited and desiring faculties and so on, um, you know, some of them break. And again, this, this all goes back to uh, Plato's Timaeus. He talks about how coming into the body is such a traumatic experience that throws off the revolutions in our heads. Cognate to the revolutions in the heavens, so I think there, like the idea of astrological remediation, might be a kind of room for you know talismans and that sort of thing in Thergy.
0: Although I don't know for sure, you know, if that's what they were right because Iambicus doesn't doesn't get into it, right? Um, right. Porphyry does give us a lot of data on this in his book about embryology and in lots of other scattered places, and seemingly he really does view the descent of the soul as a step-by-step descent through the spheres, and that our vehicle is actually made of these planetary uh, influences. Now, at the risk of jumping ahead to the subtle physiology stuff, Iambluchus has a very different take on the vehicle from porphyry. Do you want to lay that out? Because you discuss it really well in in your thesis. um, Sure, and
1: it's kind of impossible not to discuss these things together, the, the idea of like material purifications of the soul, and then the faculties that are uh, imparted from the planet. So for Yamblichus, he talks about a a luminous and ether-like vehicle. The luminous body is just this permanent thing that the the soul acquires that's made of this rarefied material, you know, uh, ether or panoma. And it's that vehicle that, you know, allows the soul to move around, including like prior to uh, birth. So it descends through the planetary spheres, picks up Accretions or influences along the way, and you know these can be understood, I think, as just like attaching to the vehicle. And in that sense, it's slightly different than than Proclus's take on it. Proclus has two vehicles, a pneumatic vehicle and a uh, luminous one. And in, the luminous one, like yamblichus's luminous vehicle, is immortal or at least survives longer than the pneumatic one. There, it seems like Proclus, the pneumatic vehicle, is perhaps the influences from the planets. Whereas for Yamblichus, who doesn't have this extra vehicle, he just kind of accounts for them as accumulations on the on the soul and its vehicle. And it's these things that constitute, you know, the irrational faculties of this hebdomatic soul.
0: But it's immortal. Um,
1: right. But presumably the, the planetary influences would be uh, shrugged off upon re-ascent, right? Uh, mm-hmm.
0: Just like, you know, we get in uh, the and and other sources. As a general principle, The idea that ascent is going to involve divesting yourself of those things is clearly a common thread across the Hermetica. Probably the Chaldean oracles, even though they're not explicit about it, it just seems quite obvious that something like that is happening. I mean, they probably were explicit about it, but we don't have enough of them. And 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 Porphyry, for that matter. But what's interesting to me about this Aguedes, um and Aetherodes, Soma or Ohima, is that it's this eternal, it's, it's actually created by the Demiurge, right? It's like the, the precise identification of the Demiurge and Iamblichus has, has given a lot of scholars pause, but it's noetic anyway. It's like from the, the noetic uh, triad for sure. So above right. the cosmic level. So the, the Ohima is this sort of, it has the same kind of um, gravitas as the soul itself in a way even though it's sort of quasi-material, which is, I think, a new thing in Iamblichus from from surviving Platonism, right? I mean, Plotinus thinks there is a nomadic vehicle, but he just doesn't really talk about it very much. He doesn't think it's that important. For Porphyry, it is really important. And for Iamblichus, it's seemingly not only very important, but of like a great stature in his system.
1: Yeah, it seems to be. The question is, you know, like, where did this thing come from? And you've covered all this, so I'm not going to go over all the evidence or anything, but, you know, less about where it came from and more just the idea that like, you know, there were lots of different ways of talking about what seems to be a pretty similar phenomenon. You know, this notion of the soul or some vehicle of the soul descending through the planetary spheres, acquiring influences, and then also being the source of perhaps something like an out-of-body experience, you know, or um, or to be able to move through the planetary spheres or move through the cosmos while still alive even, um, which seems to me to be kind of an essential source or an, an essential role for the the vehicle for Yamblichus. And I perhaps that's why it's significant, but I, I'm pretty much speculating here. I, I honestly haven't thought about that question a whole
0: lot. Well, I like it. This makes perfect sense. The... the... Ochima, for iamblichus, as for porphyry, is the site of, among other things, fantasia, the faculty of imagination, which we should not confuse with the modern uh, meaning of imagination is just sort of making stuff up, but the way that the soul projects images before the mind's eye. um, So all the sensation, all the sense data that comes in through our... So I'm just going to do a bit of quick Aristotelian theory here. All the sense data that we pull in wouldn't be accessible to us if we didn't have the fantasia, which kind of makes it into a movie. Which, to be fair, is very sophisticated psychology because you do need something like that, right, to account yeah for, exactly to uh-huh. account for the way we perceive the world. And that takes place in the ochima, not in the soul itself. So that the ochima is this sort of movie screen with sound and vision and smell and everything that allows the soul to perceive the world, right? So it would be indeed the perfect place to experience other stuff like cosmic ascent right exactly and you know talking about the the Acuma as the
1: a kind of screen or whatever a kind of pneumatic envelope upon which images of the gods are projected I mean this is obviously a modern metaphor not the but um, I think it I think it kind of works for how they thought about it I mean both Yamblichus and Sinesius who probably was drawing on yamblichus uh, significantly in his Uh, account of how prophetic dreams work, Um, you know, both of them talk about the Pnoma as the substance of the imagination. And that seems to be like a really important idea, not only for, you know, understanding how like how Neoplatonic anthropology works or psychology, but the notion of purifying the vehicle either from planetary influences or just getting the planetary influences to work the right way um, is essentially what allows this pneumatic screen, if you will, to be clearer and to allow us to perceive more readily the images of the divine that
0: that come to a theurgist. So. Right. I'm reminded of, of the metaphor of polishing the, the mirror of the heart that you find all the time in.
1: Uh, right. Yeah. I think there, there's another common one too. I don't remember which Platonist this is, but there there's an idea of like a sponge. There's a sponge metaphor that if uh, the sponge is not thoroughly saturated with water, then it will become flat. But if it's pr- in its proper form, it's more round and, you know, it gets to the whole idea of sp- spheres being the perfect shape and the sphere of the soul being kind of bent out of shape when it descends. In,
0: Brilliant. Yeah, great uh, metaphors. We should mention that the vehicle, according to Proclus' um, commentary on the Timaeus, Iamblichus does maintain that the vehicle is spherical because that is the suitable shape for something that is trying to imitate the activity of the noose, which is, of course, it has a spherical motion in some non-spatial way. So we right. have a spher- spherical immortal subtle body acts as our interface with the cosmic realm. It also acts as our uh, vehicle in a very literal sense. And I, I really like how you bring out the function of, you know, like, it's really a vehicle. Get in the whip. We're going to the Uranos. You know. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, in, in book 10 of the De Mysterious, Yambikas talks about, you know, joining oneself to all the individual parts of the cosmos. And uh, there we get kind of almost like an outline of theurgy where he talks about purification and then a kind of like uh, joining. I don't think he talks about Sustas' rituals there, but he, he does talk about that elsewhere. And, but just like conjoining oneself to the gods in various ways, and, and all of which is toward the ultimate goal of theergy, which is uh, ascent to the one or realization of one's inner one or something like that. You know, so I, I think that the amount of preliminary work for the theergist, according to Iamblichus, is very voluminous. Like we, he talks about how, you know, at the end of one's life, one would be lucky to have uh, one of these experiences and then it you know, certainly wouldn't happen uh, to everyone
0: so yeah you emphasize in your thesis as well that that this is a lifelong practice something that um crystal addy in her work has has really emphasized as well that this is something that you're doing constantly. So in that sense, it is a kind of religious, philosophic way of life, right, theurgy. In the- yeah, very much so. And it
1: you know, it complements the, uh, the dialectical philosophy, which in many ways has some of the same goals as, as theurgy. I see that as kind of like where, you know, what Iamblichus adds to Neoplatonism maybe is this, this ritual practice that's alongside and complementary to the Platonisms before him, but not necessarily, you know, something completely new. So I try to read uh, what he's saying about like the purification of the soul alongside other dialectical purifications and whatnot. Hmm. And I think that's where, in terms of the common understanding of Iamblichus, that's what's often left out of the the account of theurgic practice is that these people were philosophers, you know, And, and this is philosophy in, you know, as a way of life, as Pierre Hadot famously said. And You know, not simply like academic philosophy as we might envision it nowadays, but even prior to or um, in Platonisms that didn't have a theurgic element,
0: they were very much
1: practice-based in some sense.
0: Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And I think in in our coverage of Jan and Theurgy, one thing that all the scholars we've talked to have agreed with is that the old Dodzian manifesto of the irrational dichotomy between theoria and theurgy Theurgia does not hold water historically or theoretically or methodologically, but I like the emphasis you bring to it. What can we say about divine names, which I guess in a way could be seen as the other big type or category of synthemata that the theurgist is going to use, not just the material stuff, right. but the words. Yeah, and, and this gets back
1: to what I was talking about just briefly earlier about how I was thinking of the material stuff as being kind of an introduction to the discussion of what Gregory Shaw calls intermediates in Themata, right? Like names, numbers, even um, images, that sort, sort of thing. So yeah, I think in some of the ways that Platonists discuss names is very similar to the way that these same thinkers discuss like divine statues and whatnot. Especially in Proclus, you see that the analogies between statue and name, you know, almost discussing, or I think he even calls uh, names like verbal statues or uh, verbal icons. So uh, everything that we've said about material synthemata as reflecting the influence of a given divine power, um, you know, as a kind of like imprint or signature, even in a sense, like having an iconic relationship with the, the God that it refers to in the same way, like names can be understood as a kind of like imprint or icon of a divine power. And this really gets back to, you know, there's two famous debates, one in the, the De Mysteries and then one in uh, Origins Contra Kelsum, Right. And they're both, both Iamblichus and Origen are arguing for this divine inspired theory of language, which, you know, ultimately comes from uh, Plato's Cratylus. And then on the other side, we have Porphyry or uh, Celsus arguing about or saying that names are purely conventional, which gets back more to um, Aristotle's idea of this. So it's it was also fascinating to find that conversation happening, you know, regardless of religious borders and that kind of thing. This was a a very widespread theology of names, if you will, uh, very similar to how widespread uh, cosmic
0: sympathy was, I think. Mm, That's something that will play out very much in the history of Western esotericism going through the middle ages, where you'll again have not only the idea of that, the scriptures are somehow in some sense, the speech of God, right? Which presents all manner of uh, philosophical problems, that you got to figure out how does how does that work but also the question of uh, you know essences being somehow connected to the words that express them versus nominalism which is actually something that arises among a kind of like hardcore of uh christian medieval monastic writers and then that takes things in a really weird new direction but language as somehow connected to reality is what is lying at the back of Yamblichus' thinking, would you say? Right. And
1: in some ways, this is, it, it's very much, you know, one thing that Yamblichus and Origen had in common was that they both had kind of this Egyptian context that they were writing within. I mean, Yamblichus was not Egyptian himself, but um, he certainly took on the persona of an Egyptian um, and did it quite well. I mean, the kinds of things that he's preserving about Egyptian uh, religion, despite being dismissed by you know, most of the twentieth century's worth of scholars as being just exoticizing fictions, nevertheless has been shown to be authentically Egyptian in much more recent work. I'm thinking specifically of like uh, David Klotz's book, uh, Caesar in the City of Amun, important for also uh, uh, I think I probably discovered his work through um, Christian Bull's um, Hermes book uh, more recently, which uh, takes a very similar approach to the material that that I do. Maybe I could talk a little bit about like an example of a name as maybe reflecting the kinds of characteristics of the God that it refers to. Please Um, do. And this would also tie into uh, isopsophy a little bit. So in the book I talk about, you know, Yamblichus doesn't mention this name, but um, in the PGM, one very common name that comes up quite a bit, probably the second most common after Iao, the a uh, Greek version of Yahweh, is AbraSax, right? Which famously has a numerological uh, significance. So by the technique of isopsophy, essentially from two words in Greek, iso meaning equal and psephos meaning pebble, really. But these were the pebbles used for voting counting. and counting and whatnot. Yeah. Right? So I, I will sometimes translate the word psephos as like cipher because it usually is used in a specific way in the PGM to refer to a hidden numerical value of a given name or something like that. So Abersax is probably the most uh, common name there. It's just based on the the numerical values of the letters being added together. So the three A's are each one. The B is two. The R is 100. The S is 200. And then the C at the end is 60, which I think if I didn't leave anything out, it's 365. Yeah. So Beyond the obvious, like, solar significance of that name, um, there are a couple places in the PGM that actually talk about this explicitly. Um, there's a rite called the, uh, well, in bets anyway, it's the Binding Love Spell of Astrapsicus. It's this elaborate invocation of Hermes slash Thoth, and a number of names are given for Hermes in that ritual, including Abersax, which is the last name, and it's said that it's having seven letters corresponding to those who rule the cosmos. So the Mm -hmm. the seven individual level letters can be um, correlated with the planetary gods, but then the, the the cipher 365 corresponding to the days of the year um, and perhaps indicating something like transcendence of the material cosmos or, um, Or rulership
0: Uh, over the whole, a bit like the variant spelling of Mithras as Mithras, which is exactly only exists because they had to get it to add up to 365. (laughs) Right,
1: Right. which is odd because Mithras in its normal spelling is 360, which is enough to be significant in that way. I mean, the Egyptians, of course, you know, had a 360 day year with some extra days added on. Yeah. Um, So it was significant already.
0: But, you know, the 365 day year is in our as far as we can tell something very specifically egyptian that uh, it's a fudge you know that doesn't have like a leap year or whatever but it it's it worked well enough that it was taken on by like like the Deccans, was taken on by loads of non-egyptians in the roman empire so it was one of the few contributions to like sort of calendrical stuff that the egyptians made that everyone absorbed
1: And the Ptolemaic version of it even did have a leap day that mm. they included every, yeah. every four years. So, uh, yeah, and that influenced the Julian calendar, I guess, mm. kind of adapted it from, from there. And, and that, you know, that I don't know how far afield this would be, but, you know, Yambukas talks about the Egyptians being obsessed with time, right? And he, he has this really troubling passage where he says that they have this theurgic technique of ascent that uses only the observation of the correct time. And the the Greek word is kairos. And it's the only place that that word appears in the De Mysteries. And it was puzzling to me that he would think that the Egyptians could just ascend by only observing the right time for these things. Until I realized, like in my more recent work, I've been pushing things backward in time and looking at as much Egyptian material in the Greco-Roman period and even um, in periods before that as possible to kind of see how much did Yamblecas actually know in terms of his understanding of this. And you know they really were total innov- innovators in terms of time. you know we get our 24-hour day from the Egyptians. You know, they had elaborate uh, rituals that they would perform every day that used either water clocks, which they had invented um, in the second millennium B.C., or uh, sundials, I guess, to keep track of the 12 hours of the day, which would have been 12 equally divided hours. They wouldn't have been like 12 60 minute hours like they have. They're not not
0: arbitrary. They shift depending on the season and stuff like that. Exactly.
1: Yeah. So it's 12, 12 equal divisions of the daytime hours and then 12 equal divisions of the, the nighttime. So there's stuff in the PGM that reflects this, um, this kind of timekeeping practice. And, you know, looking at all of these things together is, is why I think that, you know, some of these uh, Greco-Egyptian ritual papyri are very much appropriate for understanding Iamblichus'
0: theurgy. In Unapius... There's an episode, he refers to Kairos a couple times vis-a-vis Yambukos, and he, he refers to it in a way that isn't making a point about it. So it's almost like the reader is expected to understand that these things are done according to Kairos, but he's talking about a sacrifice. He says, when the Kairos came to sacrifice, they did. So this is, I think, pretty strong evidence that the ritual day, let's say, of a Iamblichian philosopher, had appropriate times for doing ritual practices. And these are explicitly astrological in Eunapius. So that little piece of evidence, if we want to accept it as being relevant to Iamblichus, Yamblicus's practice, you could be quite minimalist and skeptical and say, well, this is just Eunapius, and he puts in all kinds of stuff that we don't really think Iamblichus did. But I, I think it's quite plausible. This indicates like that they've really integrated what you might call catarchic astrology with what they're doing ritually. You don't just do stuff at any old time. You do it at the right time astrologically. Right.
1: Yeah. And even, I mean, there's also a, a catarchic ex- astrology is, you know, notoriously difficult to calculate the exact time. And I, I would only imagine how difficult it would be without computers. Like, So, you know, there were even simpler techniques Well, first of all, there were things like the, you know, just the observation of the rising sun, the noon sun and the setting sun. I mean, that's kind of like the basis of many of these um, forms of doing things for each of the 12 hours or whatever. But then you get the 12 hour system specifically combined with an astrological Hellenistic idea of the planets and called the planetary hours appropriately enough. And they start with Saturn and Mm. descend through the Chaldean order of the planets and it's the, the permutation that's produced by doing the seven planets over the 24 hours of the day. You get a remainder of three every time. And it's that remainder of three that produces our really weird order of the days of the week that yep. we still use. So um, yeah, it's weird to think about that coming from something like the esoteric technique of the planetary hours, but yeah, it does seem to be the source.
0: Yeah, so the days of the week are, as far as we can tell, this is how they w- their order will have been derived. Now, this I think is a, a good reminder to us that Astrology or astrology astronomy just wasn't esoteric in the sense of marginal, right? It's esoteric right. in the sense that in many ways, like in 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 the authors like Valens who write about it in the technical sense, they, they present it as a science, like a holy science that must be kept from the uninitiated and so on and so forth. But it's not esoteric in the sense that it's not mainstream in greco-roman culture it's everywhere from the imperial level down to the level of someone who's just trying to find out what's going to happen uh in their day-to-day life and has a few obols to spare it's it's really really at the center of a lot of people's lives in various levels of sophistication and complexity
1: yeah exactly i think that definitely it can blend off into the, the esoteric but perhaps like you know genethleology or birth chart astronomy or astrology rather um very mainstream, probably interested even the the great mass of the illiterate, I would imagine were even interested in this kind of thing. But for those you know philosophers and other uh, highly educated people who are working with this stuff, yeah, definitely not esoteric for them. And I, I think this really gets at the idea that you've brought up in previous shows too about like um how hard was hard determinism. I, I think for the people who are working with this stuff, maybe not as hard as for the people who are just going to an expert and being told what their fate is, you know. Um, certainly they had fewer options, I think, or, you know, maybe they could then consult with, um, a magos of some kind who could, uh, wash off their fate and give them a new one right. as PGM 13, I think talks about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So there's all kinds of what you've talked about is remediations possible. Right. And there's also just the fact that for someone like, um, Yambikos, or for a, a Platonist philosopher generally, yes, fate is real, but it's local not all of you is subject to fate, right? Um, certainly that's true for Plotinus, but I mean, in a, in a very strong sense, but I think it's also true for Jamblichus in a way. I think by purifying the soul of the fatal stuff that it gathers on its descent, you make yourself immune to fate, basically.
1: Exactly, yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, the, the idea of a body being, uh, you know, a local manifestation of a, of a soul or whatever you know that's that's just a temporary condition that very much maybe you know maybe that can't be extracted from the apparatus of fate you know the planetary spheres and so on but um the soul whose origin is above all of that is certainly you know free to renegotiate that theurgically perhaps
0: i'd love to talk to, to you about two very specific ritual practices that we see reflected both in Jambluchus and in maybe in our magical sources. The uh, first one is systasis, which is something we talked about back when we introduced the Chaldean oracles. What role does that play in Jambluchian theurgy?
1: Well, so he presents it as a kind of ritual. You find lots of examples of almost precisely what he's talking about, it seems, in the PGM. Um, perhaps the most Useful right would be the sustasis idio daimonos, which is the encounter with one's personal daimon, um, which very much seems to be aligned with how Iamblichus talks about the personal daimon in Book Nine, um, and distinguished from how, the way that Porphyry is sort of trying to treat it as a as a kind of stellar or astrological category of some kind. Iamblichus's point is no, in fact, it's a hypercosmic power that controls all of these influences on one's life and therefore must be, you know, hypercosmic in that sense, above fate. Yeah. So what do you make of the, the
0: personal daimon for Iamblichus? What is its significance?
1: I think it's consistent with earlier platonic accounts and that it's, you know, the kind of guide for the life that the soul has chosen for itself. And the myth of Ur at the end of uh, The Republic is kind of the, the main source there for the idea that a soul chooses at least the first incarnation or whatever. Um, I don't know about how Iamblichus would regard like this idea of subsequent incarnations not necessarily being chosen or whatever, but it does seem that the personal daemon plays a significant role that cannot be reduced to any kind of astrological category. So, you know, Porphyry's quest for the Oiko Despotes as a kind of indicator of the personal daemon, which is a very influential idea, as I'm sure you know, in the history of uh, esotericism, it, you know, it's even has echoes in um, Paracelsus even, you know, yeah. the, you know, so I think that like for Gamblicus, it's just a much more significant entity and it guides the individual life until the point at which the Theragist can establish a, perhaps a seustasis, a kind of encounter with the deity that is above the personal daimon, And at that point, the daimon becomes less significant, and the theurgist is working more directly with the deity above that daimon. But as we've already said, even the the daimon itself is not a a cosmic power in any way. So I, I think of this a lot of times in contrast or comparison with with how uh, Plotinus discusses his daimon. And you know, the thing that's really interesting there is. Uh, that he kind of defines it as the entity that's just above wherever the developmental level of the soul is. Um, so if the soul, I mean, if the self identifies with the soul, then perhaps the daimon is noose um, and so on. I guess I should have started lower down the chain to have another example, but uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, And
0: interestingly enough, the result of the, you're thinking of the, the invocation priest, of his daimon. In, yeah. Making uh, him visible to himself anyway. Um, right. Is that his daimon is indeed a God, which means that presumably Plotinus himself is a, a daimon-esque. He's right. very loose with this terminology, and he'll call gods daimonis and daimonis gods and everything yeah. a Yeah, and it's a so. very
1: loose term throughout the history of its use. Yeah. Uh, even in the 3rd and 4th century, you know, people are using it in vastly different ways. So. Yeah.
0: That gives us some idea about what sustasis might be about. It's it's a, it's a forging of connections, right? It's a... yeah,
1: exactly, and that's why you get so many of these words in Yemelcus that are built on the prefix soon. You know, uh, soon afe, you know, contact or contact together, um, sustasis literally standing together, but something like an encounter or a meeting, soon thema soon soonvelos and so on. All all of these soon words, it, you know. So in a sense, like theurgy, in that broad sense, is about making these connections with the various divine parts of the cosmos, which are ultimately identical with us, right, in this, like, monistic system of theurgic Neoplatonism, at least, and perhaps Neoplatonism in general, the idea of just r- making the contact is just realizing or even remembering that, you know, we're identical, in a sense, with these, with these entities.
0: Right. And speaking of making contact, another way that Yamblikus makes contact with higher entities, by looking at them somehow, they, they reveal themselves, right what do you think is going on there talk could you talk about the the leading of light ritual because this is some somewhere where he gives us like really concrete this is how you go about this to some degree yeah
1: so uh photagogia or photos Agogay, I guess the leading of light, um, is two two ways that he'll talk about this. And I think it just has to do with purifying oneself to become a kind of pure receptacle for divine influence and then being able to see the divine light. Because for Iamblichus, light is what connects everything. You know, it's it's in some sense the medium of philia and sympathia. It's an immaterial aspect of the gods that just interpenetrates the entire cosmos. And so it's it's a question of setting up a, a ritual, I guess, in the the way that would utilize the light of the sun or the moon or some other heavenly body. Um, certainly, I think, practically speaking, the sun and the moon would be the most easy, but I, I think that additional additional planetary or other stellar bodies is an interesting idea that may get at this whole like planetary remediation idea also. So for Yamblichus, this is just a form of divination, but it's a form of like divine divination as distinct from um, what he would consider more just like human techne, you know, uh, human techniques of, you know, reading the birds or the entrails of animals or what, and that kind of thing for him. This is an opportunity to, create a pure receptacle for divine light that then can be informative in some ways. There is at least one rite in the PGM that uses this uh, terminology, but I would argue that probably some of the others of the bowl divination and lamp divination variety, I mean, especially bowl divination, I guess, since, you know, you can imagine, you know, reflecting sunlight or moonlight in in a bowl of some kind would would work. So I, I think that some of those rites may be the kinds of things he had in mind there. Certainly, you know, also maybe not with a medium, just the idea of a sustasis or um, autopsia or autoptos. This is another, um, like a direct vision ritual. This is another well-attested um, genre of rites in the PGM that Yamblichus also talks about alongside um, sustases And those rites, whether they um, use a medium or not can still be considered a kind of direct vision. But I think the way Yamblichus means it is direct to one's panoma, maybe even with the eyes closed. Um, you know, so a kind of divination that doesn't use an, an external
0: medium of of any kind. Interesting. I always interpreted Iamblichus's the ritual he's describing here as being somewhat in the line of various uh, accounts you get of not just in the ancient world, but even in, into modern. Maybe even we want to talk about Jakob Böhmer's profound vision where he saw some light glinting off a pewter tankard and then had his great revelation from that. But this this effect that certain like glinting light can just seemingly, just viewed through the physical eyes, can have on the human psyche where you suddenly start to go into an altered state and see things, you know? Okay. Interesting. I wonder, I don't think I, I don't think
1: I read it that way, but I I do think that like it very much fits in with what Yamblichus is saying in terms of how inspiration and enthusiasm work. Sometimes like it may not be directly after one does the ritual work. It may be, you know, months later, but you know, still the fitness of the soul is there and ready to deal with it. I suppose if it happens part of what the way I understood, um, you know the purifications of this seven-part planetary soul were by looking at the analogy of melathesia, which is just the assignment of the parts of the body to various astrological categories. You know, the I've, I think I went through them earlier. So like the decans or even the double decans, which Iamblichus also talks about. So seventy-two of them in the Apocryphon of John. There's 365 members of the body, even though the list doesn't quite add up to that. Uh, many, but I, I mean, there are many ways of breaking this down, right? So I I tend to view these like subtle physiological models based on understanding the cosmos as a living organism to be really just like models that then the theurgist uses ritually to interact with various powers that may have correlates within his or her own person. So yeah, in my work now, I'm looking even at the different ways that ancient Egyptian uh, thought or ancient Egyptian priests considered the body and its deployment in various symbolic ways. And um, one way that that happens is through this genre of rituals called the Gliedervergaltung, which is a German word that means limb divinization, basically, which very much gets to uh, the idea of what Iamblichus is trying to do, I think, maybe with the soul, like soul divinization, the parts of the soul are being divinized separately in a planetary way. But this is a genre of ancient Egyptian spells that go all the way back to the pyramid texts and survive into the PGM, you know, 2,500 years later. And there's an example in the PGM that's limb divinization of plants. And these are plants that presumably have a kind of sympathetic relationship to some cosmic power already. But then the uh, ritualist is picking it in an elaborate way where the different parts of the plants are identified with different Greek and Egyptian gods in the same way that the deceased would be identified uh, with different gods um, in a kind of like empowerment post-mortem. And, you know, the applications of this in magical texts do exist also in ancient Egyptian, the Metternich um in the Metropolitan Museum. It's this elaborate spell for the for curing the poison of a cat and it talks about all of the different limbs of the cat identified with the different gods and one pours the water over the stela and then the, the magic is you know incorporated into the water which then can be drunk by I guess the poisoned creature whether it's a cat or a, or, or a person but yeah it's a pretty fascinating way of thinking about parts of the body and the body as like a metaphor for the cosmos um, there are other ways that the Egyptians also talk about those kinds of things, but I'll I'll leave it at that for now.
0: Well, Brian Alt, thank you so much for this discussion of, of the specifics, you know, the concrete stuff, because that's really, in a weird way, more inaccessible to us than the metaphysics and the kind of theory, right? Even though it should be the other way around. It should be that the, the everyday concrete nitty gritty of this practice is something that's known to everyone, but it's the the subtle interpretation of it that is Yamblichus' own. But, um, you know, it's just always difficult to reconstruct ritual action from antiquity. And I love how you use the PGM and other materials to, in a comparative way to help us understand Yamblichus. So thanks again, and uh, stay esoteric. Thanks. You too.